session with Dr. Farid Polaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Hulakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show and suggest topics for the program and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my soundcloud page and free podcasts on itunes again studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 uh this weekend i was in mexico visiting an orphanage there ranchos los niños which i hope to talk about later on the show but um many people had asked me about it before i went so I just wanted to say it was an incredible experience and I'd like to talk more about it and might do so later on today's show or possibly on Wednesday's show. Um, but I do always want to start with the book of the week because I mentioned that. So I'll start with that and see if we have time later on to talk about my experience this past weekend. So the book for this past week, or actually I should announce the next book before I do that. For this week, the book, it's one of my favorites of all time. I knew I would talk about it at some point i chose it for this week it is the art of loving by eric Fromm. the art of loving by eric Fromm. um this is a fairly short one although it can take some time to get through because it's pretty dense it's kind of has more of a poetic uh, quality to it but also a lot of wisdom in there as well so i hope you'll join me in reading that and in a discussion on that book next week, The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm. But before uh, we'll get to that book, today we'll talk about The Brain, The Story of You by David Eagleman. The Brain, The Story of You. And this was a, a good read. In about 200 pages, he talks about a lot of different issues related to the brain, starting with how the brain develops in certain ways, and then also looking at some interesting findings that recent neuroscience research has told us about how the brain works and sometimes how it doesn't work or how we think it might work and actually are wrong about that. So to begin with, he talks about plasticity. Now, plasticity is this idea that the brain, although we think of it sometimes this part does this and that part does that, it's not really completely that way. To begin with, um, no one action is really done by just one part of the brain. There's much more of a connection of things going on at the same time, but we sometimes talk about the visual cortex or the auditory cortex, but really that's just simplifying. It's much more complicated than, than that. But also what they found in particular with people who have experienced brain damage or different types of um, injuries to the brain, that other parts of the brain can start to take over one part of the brain. So if you have an injury somewhere, sometimes another area of the brain can actually start to do that thing. Uh, he shared the story of this one young girl who had this, I think it was some type of epilepsy where she'd have really bad seizures that would become really bad over time. And they removed nearly half of her brain. And they found that over time, she was still able to do 
most things. She had some weakness on one side of her body because um, the body couldn't control that ant side as well as let's say someone who hasn't had that surgery, but still incredibly with basically half a brain, she was able to do most things okay. Um, and also we know that the brain does evolve or change as we get older. When I was actually an undergrad um, a while ago, but not so long ago, I remember this idea always that the brain is very fixed after childhood. You get the number of neurons you're going to have and you only lose them until death and not much changes in the brain once you get to a certain point after especially adolescence. But now we're learning that that's not the case. The brain can constantly change throughout our lives. Um, one example I can think of that I don't think this book mentioned, but when you meditate and you practice meditation for a, a period of time, we see changes in the brain. For example, the amygdala becomes less active, and that's a part of the brain that's related to emotional reactivity and emotions, and it becomes less reactive, meaning we're a little bit more calm, and we can actually see this difference in the brain. So the brain can change after birth. It's not like we are only uh, given this fixed brain that doesn't change at all. And that's something very important. Now, also, we think about our brain and it really is this incredible piece of machinery, if we want to call it that, and everything that it can do. When we try to have computers or robots do the things that our brain does without really much effort, we see how hard it is. For example, walking up the stairs and talking at the same time. Well, for most people, you don't think much about that, but what the body and the brain have to coordinate together is a lot of things that is actually not simple at all. And when scientists try to get a robot to do some of those things, we see how hard it is. But at the same time, our brains can do certain things or they might trick us in ways we're not aware of. To begin with, we think that, at me myself, as I'm looking out in front of me, that what is... I'm seeing is what's out there in the world, that there are these objects and these colors and those colors are out there and then I'm picking it up and taking it into my brain and then I see it and, you know, hear things or whatever else it might be. But we know that it's not exactly that way. First of all, there isn't this objective reality in that sense. There really isn't such a thing as color the way we might think of it. There's wavelengths of light that get reflected off an object that we then perceive a particular way, but there really isn't color, so to speak. That's something that our brain sees itself, but isn't really something that is there. And so because of that, we know that as much as we think that I'm looking out into the world or my senses are just taking things in, we know that it's not just a bottom-up type of a process where things are out there in the world, I take them in, and then I see them or hear them or feel them as they are. The process goes both ways, where what you want to see or expect to see or are used to seeing affects what you actually see. Our brain also has an effect on what we're going to see. An example of this I can think of just off the top of my head is if you've ever been waiting for someone. For example, you're at the airport and you're really excited to see a friend or a loved one or husband, wife or whoever it might be. And you're really excited and you've probably had this experience because I know I've had it so many times where you're expecting to see the person and you almost see their face on someone else. Like you're like, oh, that's, oh, that's not her or that's not him. You know, and sometimes you can be really off. I remember one time 
picking up my brother from the airport and I saw someone, it was just so far from what my brother looks like. And I think he even had a cigarette in his mouth and my brother doesn't smoke, but still for just a fraction of a second, I thought I saw my brother. So clearly my perception was being affected by my brain and my thoughts and expectations, not just I was taking in the world as this unbiased, objective observer of reality. And an interesting way we also see this is something we call sensory deprivation. Um, very commonly, this is seen in people who suffer in solitary confinement, where they put them in maybe what they call the hole, where they get no light, they don't hear or see anything, essentially. They're in pitch black and no interaction for maybe 23 hours out of the day. And I think absolutely this is torture, cruel and unusual punishment, human rights violation, and should not be happening. Unfortunately, it still is happening very commonly in lots of prisons <clears throat> across the world. But what happens is for people who are in this sensory deprivation, rather than not seeing anything or hearing anything, after a while, they start to see things. They start to essentially hallucinate because it's like the brain needs or expects to see something, so it starts to fill in the gaps. And people who experience this talk about the things they started to see or the things they started to hear that just naturally started to happen because the brain wants to see things. The senses are ready or expecting to see something. So as a result, they do. And so this is another reminder that we rely on our senses and we should because we don't have anything else, but we have to recognize their fallibility and see the way that it's more of a two-way street than we maybe like to think. You know, you think you look at something and whatever you're seeing is just you picking up or perceiving what you're seeing. But our thoughts affect what we see. Um, another interesting study he talked about here I thought was interesting is related to Botox. And I'm sure some of our listeners might be able to relate to using Botox. But very often and people joke about how someone who uses a lot of Botox, you can't tell what they're feeling because their facial muscles are partially paralyzed, so they don't move as much. So it's hard to tell what they're feeling. So someone might say they're so surprised, but you don't see the movement of the faces you're expecting, so you don't realize they are surprised. So he talked about that, but then he also talks about this study, how it revealed something else, that actually people who use a lot of Botox when they did a study on how well they assessed or could guess, or I shouldn't say guess, could perceive the emotions of someone else, they actually didn't do a, a very good job or they did less well than other people. Now, the reason for this is that when I look at someone and they make a facial expression, I actually mimic that myself, even in a micro expression, even if it's in a for a fraction of a second. And by making the same face they are making, I feel it myself momentarily, and that gives me a better understanding of what that person is feeling. So they did studies and they saw that when they showed someone a picture of someone frowning, they saw a very slight and very short um, activation in those same muscles that would make that facial expression. So that helps us actually be empathic. When I see it and then I feel it myself for a moment, I also actually can pick up, oh, you're sad or you're angry because I momentarily feel that. Now, an individual with uh, lots of Botox can't move those muscles 
in that same way. So they're going to have a slightly harder time to recognize emotions in other people. I thought that was quite interesting, very much an unintended a side effect of Botox or one that I think most people wouldn't think of that it actually can interfere with your ability to pick up on someone else's emotions. And related to that, he shared um, that this mirroring, that's what we call this, uh, and we mirror in a lot of ways. For example, if I see you about to pick up a cup and drink some water, those same areas of my brain that do that will mildly activate, not to the same degree as when I'm doing it, but there's this subtle response within me of the mirror neurons mirroring what you are doing. And the same thing goes with pain. If I see you about to get hurt in some way, or even if you're watching a movie, we have a reaction. That's why you see a reaction. You see someone, you know, get stabbed or get shot or something, and you might cringe because you feel it yourself. Again, not close to what the person actually experiences it feels, but you imagine what it feels like, and that's why you feel it. You know, you tell uh, any guy, imagine getting kicked in that area, and they see someone getting kicked in that area, and you see them have a response because they imagine what it's going to feel like. And this explains part of what allows us to be empathic. When I see you going through something, I imagine myself feeling it, or I even feel it. For, actually, I should take that back. Not just imagine it, I actually feel it myself to a subtle degree. And that helps me understand what you're experiencing. Unfortunately, what we actually see is when we consider someone from an out group, if we think of someone as different from us, that feeling of pain is actually less, which it's kind of saddening to hear that, but it's a truth we have to understand that if I see you as an out group member and I see you suffer, I might feel less pain than if it's someone quote unquote like me. And of course, we can change who we consider us and them, something I've talked about many times on this show, but it does give us another example of the way our brain is prone to care more for certain people than others, or to think about us before them, which I thought was interesting. Another potential consequence of this idea of mirroring that he talked about, something I never heard before, you know, oftentimes people will say husband and wife start to look more alike as they get older and they start to even look more alike. Now, there's probably lots of things going on. Maybe they even start to dress more similarly or have a similar style. But what he was talking about is that because they have all these face-to-face -face interactions and they are constantly throughout those years mirroring each other's faces to some degree, the pattern of the wrinkles on their face might become similar because I'm making the same face you're making, you're making the face I'm making, hundreds and thousands of times over the years, and the patterns of wrinkles we might have will become similar as well, something that I found really interesting. Um, near the end of the book, he gets more into you know, the future of neuroscience and what we're able to do and what we're capable of doing. Can we download a brain um, onto a computer? And then if that brain is then everything of, if that computer has everything that's on my brain, is that computer now conscious? What does consciousness mean? And he discusses that in several different parts of the book about what is consciousness. There's even a whole chapter on that. But at the end of the book, looking at, well, what, what does that mean? How do we explain or understand when something is conscious or not? That's something that um, neuroscience and science in general has not been able to fully answer. What creates consciousness? We can look at 
all the neurons or all the cells of the brain and try to understand what they're doing, but we can't collectively understand how they can make consciousness or what creates that or doesn't create that, which is interesting. And he explains some theories that people have about that as well. So I found this book interesting and in giving a good overview of research on the brain, especially some more recent research. Some of the studies I had heard of, some I had not. So I got to learn a lot reading the book. So I would recommend it if you have not read it already. The Brain, The Story of You by David Eagleman. And the book for this week, which I hope you'll join me in reading, is The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm. And I'll be talking about that on next Monday's show. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadid Halakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Uh, Dr. Halakwi, thank you very much for taking my oh, call. Sure, thanks for calling. I have a, qu- I have a question regarding my daughter. She's mm-hmm. uh, the first year in university. Okay. She just finished high school last year. She just entered university. And then this, this problem she's had even, uh, even during the uh, high school time. Anytime there was a test, she starts getting really nervous. Mm-hmm from the a day or two before and even sometimes cries and she gets a little bit of a, a heartbeat goes a little bit faster and uh, also uh, she gets a little nervous and uh, uh, gets a stomachache and all kinds of things mm-hmm. and we have to keep on convincing her for telling her no problem whatever happens happens if, if you pass pass it just do your best but it still uh, it looks like it doesn't work and then, uh, uh, on, the, on the other hand, when she is doing the homework, she takes so much time. She seems to be a little bit of a perfectionist mm-hmm. when it comes to uh, doing homework. She's afraid to make mistakes or things like that. I was wondering, if is uh, what's wrong with her? Is, is, does she have OCD? Is there well, anything you know, I, I can do? I understand your concern, but just the way you said what's wrong with her, I didn't like very much. Um, because that's going to make her feel judged or, you know, this feeling of... She doesn't like how it feels either, and I get that we don't want her to feel that way. But, I, you know, I want to be okay. careful of how we say it. You know, what's wrong with you is not a good feeling. But, uh, you know, you said a lot of it yourself. Perfe- you know, before you said it, I was thinking about the perfectionism, and that's something we want to look at. And we're talking about test anxiety or performance anxiety, which many people um, deal with, and it's... It's it, you know it really does it's tough for someone who's dealing with it because they can study and they know the material, but then they show up to the tests and anxiety makes it harder for us to concentrate. Uh, people, you know, they always say I, I went blank. That's a very common experience for people who have test anxiety. So they know the material if they're calm, but when they're feeling anxious, they can't access the material because you know sometimes we can look at the frontal lobe is not really where it needs to be. It's over active thinking about these other things we can't think about too many things at the same time so they go blank and it's very sad so we have to first recognize how difficult it is for her um she's the one that's suffering and paying the price i'm sure it hurts you i was just talking about in the previous segment how our our brains will fire when we see someone else in pain and especially of course this is your daughter i'm sure it's heartbreaking for you to see her suffer we have to remember she's the one 
that is paying the biggest price. Um, and okay. fortunately, there's things we can do or she can do to help herself. And one big thing is the perfectionism. And, you know, since you're saying even when she's doing homework, it takes her longer than expected because of that perfectionism. Um, when someone is a perfectionist, and we use that word sometimes lightly, even when people go on job interviews, sometimes they think, oh, it's a good thing when they ask me what my weakness is, I'm going to say I'm too much of a perfectionist. But genuine perfectionism is a very dangerous thing because there is such a high pressure that they put on themselves to perform in a certain level and even a level that's unrealistic. No one's going to be perfect. And anything less than that makes them worthless or meaningless and unlovable, which means constantly they're facing that experience of feeling not good enough, that I'm bad, no one's going to love me, no one's going to like me. And that can really be debilitating. Um, even, it's not to scare you, but just to show the, the severity of this issue, there's been some recent studies looking at the connection between perfectionism and suicide. Because um, someone who's feeling that much pressure is going to constantly feel like they're not meeting up to the standard and they can get to even feel hopeless. And on top of that, if they're a perfectionist, it's hard for them to acknowledge a problem or that they need help and to seek out help. And we can see how that could end up being a bad pattern and cycle. So perfectionism is something we should take very seriously. Uh, I think it's good that you're saying you and your wife try your best you know, to make sure she doesn't feel a pressure from you guys that whatever happens, happens. We love you no matter what, that kind of feeling. But it seems that now she's internalized that pressure. It's from within herself. Although we do want to look at if she ever felt that pressure from you guys at a younger age, because it's possible now you've stopped. But when she was younger, you could have put a pressure on her to perform at a certain level or that she was supposed to do certain things, you know, to be good. Looking back, well, let me ask you this. Does she have any brothers or sisters? Yes. Uh, she has one one elder brother and one elder sister, yes. An older brother and a younger sister? Yeah, no, older and older. But both of them are older. Oh, older Five brother, older sister. Years, yeah. Okay. So she's, she's the youngest. And how do they do academically, the older two? University, they were just uh, you know a good average to good student. Okay. You know, they they never had this this kind of a problem. But but in her case, from the very beginning, she was academically she was a little bit better. Mm -hmm. She was always uh, you know like almost like an A student in the in the high school, uh, even though she had that uh, kind of pressure all the time on her. And then of course her mother always was so proud of her to be uh, to, to to be such a good student, even mm -hmm. though. I always I learned from uh, from the father, especially that to be average is, is the best. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then I always I always told her that you know I want you to be average, not I don't I don't want you to be the best <laughs> or an A student, just be an average student. But it just uh, it, I don't know by, by my whatever my saying doesn't really go far. She just um, she just believes what she believes. Mm -hmm. I think uh, even though I told her that if you fail any test, I give you a hundred dollars. <laughs> every, every test you fail, mm -hmm. so don't worry about failing. Failing is better for me. If you fail, you get money, you get rewarded. But uh, it's just, um, uh, it's just, it's not working. Uh, yeah. Well, it, it seems like it's you know you've you've tried a lot of things, and if I give out your number on the air, I'm I'm sure a lot of 
students are going to call you to take you up on that offer, but I won't do that. Um, but, you know, looking at what you were saying and, you know, this is what make parenting is such a difficult thing because, you know, we know some of the ways to, that are bad. If you're abusive or you put your kids down, well, clearly we know that's bad. Or if you call your kids stupid, uh, you know, everyone knows that's bad. But then on the other end, how to really give them love and support, it can be pretty complicated. It's not just, well, do the opposite of that. Because the opposite of telling your kid they're so stupid is just to overly tell them you're so smart, you're a genius, you're so smart, you're so smart, which we think is the right thing to do. But what we're seeing from the research is that this is not true. Because constantly telling them about being so smart or constantly saying you love them because they got an A or making them feel that way, one, when you keep praising them for being smart, that tells them that you're good because you got an A or you got an A because you're so good, not you got an A because you worked so hard. And this is when we're talking about the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset. The fixed mindset is you tell the kid, you got an A because you're so smart. The growth mindset is you got an A because you tried so hard. And maybe you think they don't sound that good, or you might think I'd rather hear I'm smart than to hear I tried so hard. But we know that when you tell someone they're smart, it puts an added pressure that now each time you perform, it's going to measure how smart you are, how valuable you are. Whereas if I tell you it's because you tried so hard, then you know, okay, if on the next test I get a C, that just means I didn't try hard enough. Not that I'm bad or stupid or not good. It just means I didn't try hard enough. There's something I can do about that. So maybe she has this idea and maybe she was the star student in the family. And there was always this pressure that that's what makes you stand out. That's what that's your thing and makes you good and lovable because you have that, which then puts this extra pressure of, well, if you lose that, you could lose the love and the attention and the praise that you got for getting that. And so, you know, you're talking about you want, it's good to be average. And I definitely, you know, I, I can, I get that and I agree with that. And then also it's that you want to make sure a child doesn't feel good for anything they do, you know, or feel loved for anything they do, I should say. So, you know, a child shouldn't be loved because they got an A or because they were a good boy or a good girl or because they were nice. They are worthy of love and getting their needs met no matter what. But then these other things we try to do good and be good because that feels good. And we want to do those things so it seems like maybe from what your wife the 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 praise she gave might have created a pressure that now your daughter has internalized on herself and maybe things you did as well have contributed that when she was younger and unfortunately now although your actual voices are telling her there's no pressure she's already internalized the voice from you guys that maybe is has the pressure that's now she's the parent inside her own head and so you're trying so hard to get to her yeah. So you're trying to get to her. You're telling her, no, you don't have to, you know, it doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. But already, you know, dad and mom in her head are telling her you have to get an A or else. And not, it doesn't mean you ever even said those words to her. But somehow she got to that point. Now, one thing I'll mention bringing up how you introduce the idea again of what's wrong with her. That to me is something that makes me wonder if there's a judgmentalness in how you might talk to her in general, or talk about things in general that you want to no, be no, aware no. of? No, doctor, not at all. Okay. I, 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 then, then I, I don't really judge her at all. But the only thing I'm worried about, if she has OCD and she needs to take medication because of that perfectionist or because of this, uh, this uh, the, 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 the tremendous amount of pressure that she feeds mm -hmm. just before the test, 
Well, uh, would, could OCD have anything to do with this kind of feeling or this kind of behavior? It could. I mean, you know, we're talking obsessive compulsive disorder is an anxiety disorder. So, and right. we're talking about is definitely anxiety. So there's definitely a connection and correlation between the two, but there's lots of different types of anxiety disorder. So what you described itself is not indicative of OCD, but we can, you know, ask a little bit more and see what else is there. Because um, you can have test anxiety, be a perfectionist and not have OCD. OCD involves an obsession with intrusive thoughts, um, sometimes very distressing thoughts. Like, for example, I'm going to hurt someone or kill someone or I did hurt someone or steal something or things of that nature. And then the C, the compulsions are these behaviors that the individual does sometimes ritualistic things, oftentimes involving counting or repeating certain things that they do to try to take away those intrusive thoughts. Um, and you can be considered OCD without the compulsions possibly, but um, you know that's really what the disorder looks like. Anything I describe sound like what you see in her? Well, the only thing I can see is this, uh, the cleanliness, you know, when it comes mm -hmm. to... Um, you know, like uh, dishes and forks and the food that she eats, and she just you know keeps on looking very closely to it, back and forth. Uh, is this clean? Is that clean? And then you know, uh, uh, clean the, her, her hands. Uh, she washes several times and stuff. But it's just uh, it's not not uh, not too much, but uh, it's more than average. Mm -hmm. I think she she uh, she's concerned with cleanliness of uh, her food or her hands or the. Yeah. Yeah, and so you know, I can't definitively say it's not OCD, but when we're looking at OCD, if it's about cleanliness, then we're seeing an extreme obsession where, you know, washing hands 20 times a day to the point where maybe the hands get red or have, they can even bleed or get you know, injure their own hands by washing them so much, or um, having to use hand sanitizer 50 times a day, or if they touch anything or anyone, she might just be preoccupied with cleanliness and it could go with the perfectionism and the anxiety uh, there's also something called ocpd obsessive compulsive personality disorder and that's where someone is preoccupied with rules and things being right and wrong and doing things a particular way and they they can look similar to some degree ocd and ocpd so she could have some of that in her too things have to be a certain way have to be done a certain way or else they get very uncomfortable and don't like it but you know and by the way yes and by the way she's not very good at making friends uh -huh. she has uh, just a few friends from the high school time she just uh she's not very very sociable most of the time she'd rather stay at home and spend the time with us and rather than make going out so she's 19 years old going out and you know having fun with her friends and stuff she's not really that much into it she does it every once in a while but very rarely so she doesn't want more friends, or she wants to have more friends and has a hard time making them? I think she is a little bit shy. Okay. She is not very, um, I would say, either outgoing or outspoken. You know, she just, uh, she is, uh, you know, a little bit on the quiet side, I think, when it comes socially. She's not socially very, uh, very active or very hmm. viable. Yeah, so I mean, that's something, you know, again, that could be related to anxiety too. We talk about social anxiety, but it seems like she would like to have more social interaction, but in, on one hand, she, she maybe, does. she doesn't, she doesn't. She doesn't in the moment because she gets shy or gets anxious. 
And of course, if you're a perfectionist, then even you think of social interactions and they have to be perfect and I have to be perfect in this conversation. Of course, it's not going to work that way. And relationships, almost by definition, are just something that there is no perfect way to do it. It's much more messy. And that could be something that she doesn't like. You know, we got to a commercial break and I don't want to stop just yet. So let's talk after the break a bit more, okay? Okay. All right, thank you. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. We'll be right back. back before the break we were with the caller let's go back to him radio hammer you're still there yeah yes. thank you again thank sure. you again for taking my call of course you know one thing i i, I want to mention something before we continue another thing we have to be aware of when we're looking at perfectionism and things like test anxiety is low self-esteem um and again this idea that my worth is tied into what i do or performing at a certain level because if it becomes almost a feeling of life or death or this feeling that my performance determines whether on this one test determines if I'm lovable or not or good or not. And maybe she consciously doesn't, isn't aware of that, but that's where it's coming from. Well, then we can understand how distressing it is to then be put in that situation again to take a test to basically determine whether or not I'm good or I'm lovable or I'm okay rather than how I perform on this one test. So the pressure becomes kind of insurmountable when we feel all of that and that's likely what your daughter's feeling so just another reminder and i get that you are caring for her but a reminder of what she is going through and the suffering she has each time she's taking a test i totally understand that's yeah. why she burst into crying mm. yeah. a lot of times and then she one more thing i was going to add uh, yeah. doctor, that she's uh, she's also uh, i should say not good at talking she doesn't talk very well. She just uh, speaks in very short sentences, yes mm. or no, or, or even, you know, when we have guests home or uh, we go somewhere, even even I think uh, among the family, she just, she has, uh, she only answers with just a few short sentences. She doesn't, uh, you know, like my elder daughter, she doesn't open her, her, uh, her, uh, her, her mind or her heart and uh, talks to us about everything that happened or how, how things happened, how, how her day went. Just, just if uh, anytime I ask her how was your day, just says I'm tired, or hmm. I'm tired, or it was it was tiring, or I'm sleepy, I'm hungry, or something. Just with a very short sentence, she's reluctant to just go into details or open her heart. She's just uh, that's her, her kind of character. But now, let me stop you there for a second. Can she, I mean, you know, just to make sure it's not about language or anything. I mean, if she had to give a, no, 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 a no. presentation or something, she can do that, right? So you're saying she's kind of closed off. She's guarded. She doesn't have any. She's guarded. She doesn't have any problem uh, with presentation and things like that. And the other thing that you know. uh, And you know, let me stop you there for a second. I want to hear about the next thing. Um, You know, that again, it, it could be very much related to this feeling that if people saw me, they wouldn't like what they see. So I have to hide myself. And that reminds me again of this issue of low self-esteem. So when someone's guarded, and of course there's a basic level that we all need to have, especially when you're meeting someone new, but even when you know people, we, we have our own physical or psychological skin that separates me and you, and I can keep some things private. But when someone is very closed off the way you're describing your daughter, very often that means that I'm afraid that if I show you who I am, you won't like it or love it. And so I have to hide myself. So my concern again is that 
there's a lot going on, but another layer of it that we have to keep in mind and one of the potential causes of what she experiences is a really low self-esteem of how, or how she feels about herself and her self-worth. Okay, I, I totally understand. Yeah. And now the next thing is um, I, I have a feeling that she has suspicion about others, you know, it has a, it's a little bit of a suspicious, uh, it's hard to trust others. Mm -hmm. uh, one, one reason that she doesn't make friends, she, she's, maybe she's afraid uh, that if she, can she trust them? Uh, can she trust having new friends and things like that? Has she expressed that, that to you? An issue? How has she expressed that to you, the, the, this trust issue? And the way she, 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 she's afraid of saying anything to, for example, a, a new friend or a new person. Mm -hmm. She's afraid that you know she, 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 she completely again closes off herself, and she's afraid of. Um, I don't know how to explain that. I mean, yeah. that's the feeling I get from. Uh, yeah. From well. Well, I mean, you know, there's a few ways I think we can look at that. One is again that feeling that they won't like what they see or they're somehow going to hurt me. But we also do want to look at this issue here since you're talking about trust, uh, you know, as much as you can talk about it or explain your, yourself and your wife, when you look at personality wise, or um, what, was there any harshness in how you guys were parenting? No, not at all about her, but I think, I think her mother also is uh, often of others. Okay. You know, she was just, she's kind, kind of afraid that somebody, you know, uh, get close to her, get close to, to hurt us or take advantage of us mm -hmm. somehow or another, even though I don't really believe that. But uh, she does have, uh, her mother does have uh, that suspicious feeling in her. And I'm afraid that uh, that's what she transferred to her, her daughter. Yeah, her I mean, daughter. And yeah, and, you know, transferred. Um, it happens in a few ways. Obviously, there's a genetic component of things that I want to ask about, but this specifically, you know, she's hearing it from her and seeing her mom display it over and over again from a young age. You know, she gets this idea, people are not trustworthy, people are going to hurt you. If you let them get close, that means they can just hurt you more. And then if you couple that with already the anxiety and the perfectionism she has, it's a pretty bad recipe for getting close to anyone. You know, they're not going to like what they yeah. see. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to make a fool of myself. And people are going to hurt you. So really, relationships don't seem like they're worth having when you combine all those things together. So that, that, that definitely exactly, can have an effect. Yeah. That's exactly what's happening, Doctor. Yeah, that's, that's, exactly that's a concern. Well, I wouldn't jump to medication, although that can be helpful. Um, I think therapy, I'm always going to be a big proponent of that. For test anxiety itself, if really that's what she's dealing with, there's medications that can be helpful. For example, there's something called beta blockers that they block the physiological manifestations or symptoms of anxiety. And as a result, the person doesn't feel as anxious. So it can help with performances or test anxiety and even antidepressants. And there's other medications. But I don't want to jump to that. And almost in the way you say it, I feel like it's a quick fix. Because what we're dealing with is more than just the anxiety on the tests, which is very big and is going to, can affect her future in certain ways because her performance is going to be affected and her grades and 
her academics, but I'm more concerned of this bigger picture stuff of the overall perfectionism, the low self-esteem, the inability to make relationships and have satisfying relationships, her distrust for people, and it all seems very deep. So it's possible that medication can help, but I would consider that part of the treatment uh, and the bigger part being the therapy where she talks to someone and starts to unravel some of this stuff that she's dealing with because she's dealing with a lot of stress and you know a lot of pressure of course there's anxiety but also it sounds like a very stressful life the way you're describing it and we of course don't want that for her so and also you know i talked about her academic success that's very important but we know that what's going to make someone happy long term and researchers that study happiness long term have seen this more and more is the quality of her relationships and the way you're describing it she's not really able to make almost any or any meaningful ones and so i i don't care as much about how successful she is i do care about that but much more i care about how successful she is in her personal and social life and how she feels about herself so i would really highly recommend um she gets into therapy and as always when you talk to her about that we want to make it very clear we're not saying you need it because you're bad or broken or need help but you deserve somewhere to talk look at how much pressure you have how much you're hurting we really hope you would go talk to someone because that could help you and you deserve that help doctor to make uh, to, to make things worse mm-hmm. uh, uh we are in japan oh wow so, uh, she was born in, in the states but uh, for work we've been here for a while and of course uh, she uh, you know she since she was uh, right after she was born uh, we came here and then i've taken to several therapists here even even though her, her Japanese is her you know her uh, first primary language, mm-hmm. but uh, the therapists here, believe it or not, they're not as qualified, I should say, or as uh, as uh, professional as I you know as, as one expects uh, them to be. Uh, very very mild, very slow, uh, very uh, you know it's just um, it didn't work. She went to therapists for like maybe ten ten to fifteen times, I think. Mm-hmm. And then, um, then I finally she said, "I don't want to go there anymore. Okay. I mean, it's not, it's not helping me. Or yeah, it's just, it's just not working." Yeah, well, that's pretty big information that you're you're sharing, and maybe I could have asked about that. I would never assume that living in Japan. Um, first of all, with the therapy comment. Therapy itself is very slow, whether you're in America or Japan or any other country, especially what you're talking about, her issues, it's going to take some time, especially the deeper stuff. So I hope, you know, if I I could choose what happens for her, I would ho- choose that she goes to therapy for several years, you know, not just but a few times. The, but she's the one that says she doesn't want to go. Oh, no, absolutely. I'm, no, I'm, that's what I'm saying. If I could, I'm not saying, and you don't have that power either. She has to choose it. I'm saying if I could choose or right. talk to her about that. I hope she would. And what's very important with the therapist for her is that she feels comfortable, confident that she wants to work with them. And it didn't work with someone. I hope there will be someone else. And yes, culture can be a big factor in finding the right therapist. But I hope she can find someone that works for her. But, you know, there's other elements now when you bring up that she's being raised um, in Japan. And although the world is becoming smaller, not every country is as diverse as the United States. I don't know how um, being Middle Eastern in Japan has felt for you guys. Have you felt at all discriminated against, or no? Is it a very comfortable feeling? No, her, her mother is Japanese, and uh, okay. basically all the, all the three kids are, are, are Japanese. 
Okay. And then, uh, fortunately, uh, there's no very, very little discrimination here in Japan. Very little. That's, I'm so very I, happy I to hear I, that. Okay. I, I don't feel I don't feel anything besides uh, uh, I'm I'm here, I'm here as an American, but that uh, doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, uh, that, uh, we don't we don't really, we don't really uh, feel anything. Not nothing great, at least. Mm. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that about the discrimination part that you don't feel like that's there and that they feel fairly Japanese and maybe she feels probably more Japanese than anything else, which would make sense if she got there shortly after she was born and her mother is Japanese. So I was wondering if there was some feeling of being different, but it seems like that's not the case. Um, it, you know, it's stereotypical to say this, but I know in Japan we, we hear a lot about the pressure on academics in general do you feel like that's something that you've experienced with her that she has that pressure um, yeah but not not in the university the university is easier and probably the same as the united states but yeah. in high school and uh, the uh, elementary and middle school that uh, of course they start at seven in the morning and finish about maybe 8 p.m mm -hmm. basically just like more than 12 hours a day yeah uh, but but yeah that pressure is gone but uh, she did she didn't really mind that she was uh, enjoying that uh, almost at that time. Okay. But uh, this is uh, yeah. now in the university. Yeah, and you know, it, it seems like it has less to do with being in Japan or of any country or being of any nationality. This is just what she's dealing with in a way is universal, that people deal with it anywhere that anywhere around in the world. And we have to keep in mind the things that we, we've talked about. For me, the low self-esteem, that, that could be one of the foundational things we're talking about that to me is a big concern how she looks at herself how much she thinks her worth is tied into her performance i think she does have low self-esteem mm -hmm. i think not, not not extremely but she does have an element of low yeah low it, it sounds like it's pretty i know you're saying not extreme but the way you describe her it seems pretty extreme just socially how she is how much pressure she puts just you know you know her obviously way better than me but i'm just giving you an idea based on some of the things you shared that concern me of you know how withdrawn she is, how much pressure she puts on herself, um, you know, because again that ties into my self worth has to be shown each time I, I have to perform or else I don't have a lot of worth just yeah. in and of myself. So I I would hope she you know you're doing everything you can to make her not feel the pressure. I would make sure she also sees how much you appreciate and love her just for being her or for other things uh, unrelated to her performance and 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 school. Um, medication can help, you know, but I, what's what she's dealing with, I would definitely not see it as the cure or the solution. I would hope that it's a much more complex treatment that involves therapy. Um, I know you said you felt therapy was slow and you don't maybe think the therapists there are competent. I'm sure they are. Like I said, therapy is very slow. You know, what we're doing right now, this is not what therapy looks like. It's a much slower I, process. So I hope I she will will get that opportunity. And, you know, I know you're trying to be as supportive and are being as supportive as you can. And just be patient with her that she's not trying to be um, having this stress. Sometimes it seems like, you know, if you could, you want her just to kind of cut it out or knock it off or just stop feeling it. But we can't stop that. So we have to remember she's really suffering and all you can do is be there for her and help her get the help she might need. I do have to wrap up the show, um, but I do appreciate you calling and wish thank you and you, the family the best. Thank you so much. Can I share this thing with her? Can I, can I uh, let her listen to this conversation? Sure, absolutely. Is that okay? Of course. Well, that's up to you, of course. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, you and your program. Oh, uh, it's wonderful. My pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you and thank you for your kind words. Have a great night. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye bye. 
All right. Thank you to our caller there and all the listeners and to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dolakwi. Have a great night.